0: But I'm going to talk to you mostly today about this exciting realm of exoplanets and I'm going to explain what that means uh, uh, soon. This, uh, Just as a preview, this here is an artist's conception of an exotic extrasolar planet that's very different from Earth. This is a planet that might be composed mostly of carbon and in certain conditions, around certain stars the planets that form might be different from the planets in our own solar system so you might get something like this. Why should we study astronomy in space in the first place? Well John Calvin, we've heard a little bit about Calvin today already, but uh, he said that astronomy is not only pleasant but it's also useful to be known. It cannot be denied that this art unfolds the admirable wisdom of God. Amen. That was even back in the 16th century. So so we can go forward from here. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about just the universe as a whole. Uh, Many of you, uh, uh, surprisingly, probably don't think every day about the components of the universe. So I just want to remind you where we fit in and then talk about exoplanets and then move into this kind of realm that we have to get into, once we start talking about exoplanets, and that's about finding life elsewhere, and what does that imply for life here? I'd like to um, give credit right away that for many of these images that I show, they are, uh, many of them, from the Hubble Space Telescope, and you can get them yourself. Uh, There's a wonderful website called HubbleSite, H-U-B-B-L-E-S-I-T-E dot O-R-G. If you go to HubbleSite and click on the gallery tab, you'll see images of galaxies, stars, planets, exotic things, whatever you would like. You can download them, you can read about them, you can make wallpaper for your computer on them and, and it's a great site. And then some of the information and image is, images are also from uh, the websites of NASA's Exoplanet Exploration Program, in particular the Planet Quest website uh, that I've listed here. All right, so this is the uh, beloved Hubble Space Telescope. It is an orbiting uh, school bus sized satellite. And it's really an observatory because it has several science instruments operating on it. And you can use one or even sometimes a concert of them to accomplish the science that you want to achieve. It's in what we call low Earth orbit, which means it's whizzing around the Earth once every 90 minutes. So. Uh, it's, it's, it boogies around, it's not really a great place for a telescope because if you happen to be pointing in, in, in many directions, half the time the Earth is obscuring your view so it's not the most efficient place. But it's a wonderful place for a telescope if you want astronauts to be able to reach it, to do servicing tasks, so that's why the telescope is in this orbit, so that this, the, uh, the space shuttle can reach it and astronauts can go out and improve it when is necessary, and as they have done for five servicing missions over the last 20 years. Here is an example of one uh, star cluster as seen by Hubble. And I love this picture because it shows you some of the beauty just from one cluster of stars. Now, I don't know if we're able to turn down the lights anymore, or can you see? The, I know that they probably can't turn them down too much, or the, it'll mess up the, the video. So just uh, do what, uh, what you need. But I just like, uh, I, for astronomy images, I like to, to have it dark. These are stars, and uh, you notice something right away about them. I always ask my audiences what they notice about this picture. So uh, what do you notice about the picture? Colors, right? What 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 kind of colors do you see? I hear red, blue, orange. These pictures are much more sharp if you see it on your computer screen, and it's just spectacular. Uh, what else do you notice about these stars? Some of them twinkle and He said he's seeing some of them twinkle. Uh, hmm. That may be a projector issue. The starburst pattern is <laughs> somewhat <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so uh, the the answer I'm fishing for is that some of them look bigger and brighter than others, right? Now normally when you look out at night and you see stars of different brightnesses, you don't know whether they're really intrinsically of different brightnesses or whether it's just that some of them are closer and appear brighter and some of them are farther away. In this case, this is a cluster of associated stars, so the brighter stars really are intrinsically brighter. And so you can see the huge variety there, and that basically reflects difference in masses and temperatures of stars. And I also think it shows you something of beauty, and we don't get to talk about beauty a whole lot in scientific study, but I like to step back every once in a while it talks like this and just give ourselves the luxury of, of thinking about the sheer beauty of what, uh, what we have in our cosmos And also the magnitude, you know, we're going to talk about millions and billions and all kinds of things, but pictorially you can just see in this one little cluster the number of stars is mind-boggling. And just to think that our own sun is one star uh, kind of gives you a sense of perspective. Uh, Mind you that St. Paul said that star differs from star in splendor, so he was already doing some observational astronomy himself. All right, this is your Astronomy 101. This is the only slide you get that's like this. So so this is for those of you who have not thought about astronomy in a long time. Uh, Our sun is a star. It just happens to be the nearest one to us. And our earth is a planet, of course. And we now know that there are planets around other stars. That's the topic of my talk today. And in fact, there are billions of stars in our own galaxy, which is a gravitationally bound cluster of stars and gas and dust between those stars, many galaxies are are, uh, arranged in a spiral pattern, although some are not in spiral patterns. Inside the galaxy there are all different kinds of stars at different stages of their life. There are old stars that are about to use up their inner fuel and become unstable. There are young stars that are still forming. My own topic of research was on how stars form in the Orion Nebula. And uh, many of these stars are embedded still in dense gas clouds that are often called nebulae. Nebulae is the astronomer's generic word for anything that's kind of fuzzy. And then there are billions of other galaxies, and we didn't actually know this until just a few decades ago. So we live in a privileged time to know uh, quite a lot more than we've ever known before about the universe that we live in. Here is one such galaxy, and I I always show this particular one because I'm fond of it, but it is kind of a randomly selected galaxy. It's a spiral. We can't show our own galaxy because we don't have any way yet of getting outside of the Milky Way to look back and take a picture, but from as we look around inside our own galaxy, we believe we are in a spiral galaxy, and we believe that our star, the sun, is about two-thirds of the way out here. I love this picture because you can also see beautiful background galaxies. So even just the the noise in this picture are other galaxies, very reddened galaxies. Here's a barred spiral, Um, very beautiful. The beauty uh, is you can tell also in the naming, the poetic NGC 1309. Here's another picture, but it's not stars, all right, these are our galaxies and I'm sure many of you have seen this before, but this is something that should make your jaw drop if you haven't seen it before. This, uh, this image was taken by pointing the Hubble Space Telescope in a direction where there really were very few nearby stars, so they could just integrate light day after day to see the faintest objects in distant space. This was the result of one just tiny little pencil beam uh, uh, area in the sky and you see thousands of galaxies, every one of these little nits of of light here that look like static or noise are are galaxies, each one with billions of stars. You can see some of them are a little closer so you can see the detail of spiral structure, some of them are highly reddened, some of them are very odd looking and so scientists study these galaxies in, in detail. And of course with astronomy, you have the advantage of the time machine effect because the more distant galaxies, have taken, it's taken a long time for the light from those galaxies to get to us. So we see them as they were farther back in time than the galaxies that are closer by. And by looking at one picture and comparing the more distant objects to the more nearby ones, you can suddenly tell the difference between what was happening with galaxies farther back in time as compared to galaxies like our own. And you can do comparative chemistry, for example, and see how uh, stars have changed the chemistry in their galaxies over time. All right, this is a pictorial image just showing you an overview of the history of the whole universe, and I don't have time to go into this in detail. But if you think about this as time, down on this axis from left to right, and pretend that this is extrapolated in a sphere over the entire sky, At the beginning of time, there was a huge burst of energy, we call it the Big Bang, and a period of inflation. And then over time, you finally got enough cooling that you could get the first atoms and molecules to form and eventually you get stars forming and galaxies forming and galaxies merging and evolving over time. Eventually you get the formation of planets around maturing stars in galaxies about this time and you get up to our time where we have telescopes kind of looking back over this whole history. This is one particular telescope called the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe used here as an example of observing back in this from our time throughout all time. And this pictorially is also supposed to show you that the universe is expanding over time and in fact it's accelerating. There's a lot of information in here so I don't want to get bogged down in this, but just to show you that we do have the framework of a timeline now for the history of our whole universe. And about, you know, here, a few billion years into it, we get the formation of stars in some galaxies, at least in our own, that have planetary systems forming around those stars. Very interesting, all right. Finally, just in our little overview, I wanna explain to you that stars are still forming. So here's another spiral galaxy, but this one shows you pictorially that the volume of galaxy is is mostly taken up, not by stars, but by these dusty lanes and the spiral arms and these gas clouds and lit up regions where young stars have formed and are ionizing the gas around them. This is a, a constellation many of you would recognize. Do you know what it is? Orion so if you look in that green box area and you look carefully even with binoculars you'll see that many of these stars have uh, fuzziness around them and we call fuzzy things nebulae right So, so these particular fuzzy things happen to be ionized gas clouds that when we look at them more closely like with the Hubble Space Telescope we find that there are huge stars that have formed out of coalescing gas in these clouds and then they they ionize, the light from them is so powerful that it can ionize the surrounding gas, lighting it up into these beautiful colors until the gas eventually disperses. And eventually old stars use up their fuel and explode and they disperse the heavier elements that they have fused during their lifetime into the interstellar medium, making it available for future stars. All right, I'm going to do, that was my little overview, and I'm also now going to do a few minutes of digression to tell you a little bit about our observatory before I get specifically into the topic of exoplanets, which we are studying in part with Hubble. Uh, One year ago, we were able to do the the fifth servicing mission, which NASA has called, of course, Servicing Mission 4. So the uh, servicing mission... um, was a long time coming, as I mentioned, and I'm very thankful to say that it was successful and it was very interesting. And I got to be a part of it. I got to go down for the launch. I got to be a science spokesperson with the media. I got to work in a control room down at Johnson Space Center. It was was really like playing NASA, except it wasn't playing. Here's a picture of the launch. And I was wondering, I know some of you were at Waco last year when we showed a video of the the particular launch of Atlantis space shuttle, but some of you weren't there. So I was just wondering if you would like to see it again, or those of you who haven't seen it, if you would like to. All right. All right. So since you've asked for it, now I have to uh, see if I can remember how to hit the yellow. Oh, there we go. Okay, so I'm going to pull this up to fit to screen, I think. Oh, full screen. All right. I don't see. Oh, oh should I start it first? Okay. All right. Now, just before we start, this is about a two-minute movie. I took this with my little handheld camera that my husband Mark gave me, one of the best little gifts I've ever had, just a little handheld Nothing special camera, and I was just standing there watching the whole um, event, and, uh, and, and it has great sound. So when you hear someone saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that's my voice. And standing next to me was the, uh, the senior project scientist for Hubble, Dave Lacrone, and you'll hear his voice as well. And I want to show you this also because there's only about two more launches of the space shuttle set to go. The Congress is still kind of fussing over whether it's going to be one or two, I think, um, but uh, maybe three. But many of you may never get the chance to see a shuttle launch, so here's your chance. All right, so let's let's watch it. You'll see over in the um, uh, lost my pointer here uh, over in the distance. They don't let you get too close. So the actual launch pad. Um, I think is right there. You'll, you'll see it when it actually goes up. We're in the media area here watching it go. All right, so ready? Here you go for launch. Is this coming over the speakers? There we go. Oh my gosh. Okay, main engine start. Go, go. You have the solids. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes, go. Oh my God. go. Oh my God. There are seven astronauts on top so of, of that thing. Oh my goodness. Off to Hubble. I do have goosebumps, I truly do. Oh. Is it coming up? Speakers? Okay, could you hear that? Now we're panning around and we'll see the uh, the headquarters officials and other NASA folks watching it concerned. That was Dave LeCrone right there, that's me. I have to be in my own film, right? Um, and then normally you could see the solid rockets fall off there but it was behind the clouds. You'll see in the background there this boom with an IMAX camera on the end of it. That was filming in 3-D, and now the result of that, you can see at many science museums around the nation, now a film called Hubble 3-D. And it's a movie about mainly about this servicing mission. It's a fantastic uh, IMAX film, so. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed that little excursion to Kennedy Space Center for the launch of Space Shuttle Atlantis. All right. Now, that was, that was uh, being done so that we could send our seven astronauts up to uh, put in new instruments. And there they are, happy astronauts headed off for that shuttle they just went on. Now do you see why astronauts need diapers? Yes? <laughs> All right, we did that already. Um, There they are uh, installing, uh, uh, taking out an old camera, putting in a new one, the Widefield Camera 3, which was developed at Goddard. And that's what a camera looks like when it's out of Hubble. That's me in the control room. I got to help out monitoring some of the communications. And in the background, you see the monitors where we could watch what the astronauts were doing in the payload bay Uh, each of the five days they were doing the servicing mission. And there's Hubble, all fixed and released and let go and happy to be refurbished. We hope it's going to work for a few more years uh, as we prepare for the next great observatory, the James Webb Space Telescope, to be launched. And these are some of the early images uh, that we have received from the newly refurbished Hubble. We see galaxies, we see stars, we see old stars losing their atmospheres, we see young stars forming. Here's another cluster of stars. I I, I think this shows you the even wider range of colors that we can now pick up with the Wide Field Camera 3. And then we can also peer using the infrared capabilities also of the Wide Field Camera 3 into these interstellar clouds uh, where new stars are forming. You often cannot see inside the veil of these clouds because they are obscured. But if you have another tool, you can do so. So buried inside that cloud are pillars of gas like this one. And it's interesting in and of itself, but you can't see inside. And it turns out that you see some hints of something odd coming out of this cloud, but you don't know what that is. But with the infrared channel, you can see inside there. And what you see is happening is a young star is forming. We call it a protostar. And one stage of star formation is the exhaust of some of the infalling materials due to the magnetic fields around the star into these funny-looking jets, and that's something that I study in my own research. So the tools of using other wavelengths allow us to see inside. Now we also find out that around young stars are disks of dust and gas where planets appear to form as well. And so I'm going to now... Move from our general overview, these are just beautiful pictures showing you what the images and the spectroscopy that we can do studying stars and things. And This is a distorted galaxy, it's not actually distorted but its light is because this galaxy, which is just a normal spiral galaxy, but the light has come through a foreground gravitational sink of a cluster of galaxies and it has stretched out the light into this funny, funny shape. We call it gravitational lensing. All right. And then we're also seeing very, very distant galaxies back to just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Keep in mind that the universe is 13.7 billion years, so we're now seeing back to within that .7 billion years from the beginning of the Big Bang. And those are some of the earliest galaxies. All right, so I'm going to move now if we're at 2 o'clock. Oh, I'm just right on time. Okay. Alright, so that was a bit of a hefty overview, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about the excitement of where we are and where exoplanets fit in. So right now we're seeing distant galaxies, we have wonderful facilities like Hubble, and we are also being able to see things that before were just too difficult to see or detect. One thing that's always intrigued us is that with so many stars in a galaxy, and a typical galaxy like this has at least 100 or 200 billion stars, is our Sun the only one with planets? You know? It would seem unlikely since our star is a pretty typical star. There are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way, and this is an image taken from a ground-based survey of near the center of our galaxy, so you can just see the enormous numbers of stars and the dust surrounding them around our galactic center. We, we are absolutely inundated with stars. One of them is our sun. Our sun has planets. We know that that star has life on at least one planet in this solar system. Could there be others? You know, that's the question that has intrigued us for, for as long as people have looked up into the sky. Is there another Earth? Are there other planets? You know, we wonder this. This is the picture taken from Apollo 8, if I'm correct about that. My husband is the space buff here. All right, space history buff. Why do we care now about exoplanets in a special way? It's because our technology has improved to the point where we can now detect exoplanets and we could never detect them before until about 15 years ago so things have changed through due to technology development and we can now start to ask questions and answer them that we could not do so before what are exoplanets then and how do we find and study them an exoplanet well let me just tell you the answer to the first question an exoplanet sometimes called an extrasolar planet, is a planet that's beyond our own solar system that's orbiting a star other than our sun. And over the last 15 years or so, we've actually started detecting them for the first time. Over 400 planets have recently been detected, mostly through indirect techniques orbiting other stars. So far, these planets we are able to detect are not Earth-like because our telescopes are not yet sensitive enough to detect things as small as an Earth. But this is changing fast. And it's changing fast such that exoplanets are now a great uh, top goal of NASA's science program. This is very different from when I was in graduate school. The whole idea of exoplanet studies and detections were seen. As something kind of on the fringe, not really a central part of astronomy it wasn 't even clear that you could do science, even if you started detecting the exoplanets. Would it just be like bean counting is what they used to to, to call it sometimes in not so flattering terms back then that 's all changed so now i 'm showing you sort of the, the the main science plan for the uh, for the science mission Directorate at NASA. Uh, over, that that came out a few years ago and we're still kind of of following this plan and in the area of astrophysics they have a very modest goal which is to discover the origin, structure, evolution and destiny of the universe, alright, and search for Earth-like planets, alright, it's a major goal and so I'm going to kind of skip some of these other science questions but one of them is, is there life elsewhere? And one of the research objectives to help answer that is down here, to create a census of extrasolar planets and measure their properties. This is something we couldn't have dreamed of doing 20 years ago. Now it's a goal. We're going to create a census of these and measure their properties. That's characterizing them, all right? we're not the first ones to have dreamed up the idea of other planets or other worlds. In fact, uh, uh, centuries and centuries ago, we were already have records of people speculating about this. Uh, we have Epicurus saying, in, even in 300 BC, as a Greek philosopher, that there are infinite worlds. Now, the use of world varied depending on the time frame, but still, you get the idea. There are infinite worlds, both like and unlike this world of ours. We must believe that in all worlds there are living creatures and planets and other things we see in this world. So these guys were sitting around speculating about this long ago. And, you know, women look at this and wonder, you know, who's doing their laundry and who's raising the kids while they sit around and speculate about other worlds. All right. All right. Islamic leaders were also embracing the possibility of other worlds even back in the 12th century. um, Al-Razi said it's established... Oh, he was arguing against philosophers who said, no, there's only one world, this is the only world. And he thought that was silly. He said it's established by evidence that there exists beyond the world a void without limit. They didn't, that's what they believed at that time. It's established as well by evidence that God Most High has power over all beings. Therefore, He, the Most High, has the power to create a thousand thousand worlds beyond this world, such that each one of those worlds be bigger and more massive than this world, as well as having the like of what this world has of the throne, the chair, the heavens, the earth, the sun, and the moon." The arguments of the philosophers for establishing that this world is one are weak, flimsy arguments founded upon feeble premises. So people were arguing about this long ago and speculating about these things. Even medieval scholars in the 16th century were also thinking about it early uh, in in, uh, the church history. Uh, This is Bruno, Giordano Bruno's uh, statement that he felt there were countless sons and countless Earths all rotating around their suns. You see the advancement here in in understanding cosmology here. Countless Earths all rotating around their suns in exactly the same way as the seven planets, known then, of our system. The countless worlds in the universe are no worse and no less inhabited than our Earth. Pretty interesting speculation for centuries ago. Now, of course, he was burned at the stake. (laughs) Um, I don't think for this statement, but, uh, you know, he was, he was obviously a, an outspoken uh, person, perhaps to his detriment. And, of course, we've all been influenced by Hollywood's vision of what finding other planets might mean for us. They could be friendly or they could be not so friendly, right? Uh, there could be life elsewhere, and it might create uh, interesting predicaments for us. Um, so how do we detect exoplanets? All right. Just doing a time check, it's five after two, is that correct? All right. There are several techniques. Right now, it's very difficult to go take a camera and point it up at a star and take a picture and count the planets around it because planets are very dim and they're next to something very bright. And they're just, they have been next to impossible to detect in this way, although I'll show you the progress there. So most of these planets have been detected using indirect techniques. One detective technique is to actually look for the planet's effect on its parent star. So as a planet orbits its parent star, what's actually happening is that the two bodies or however many bodies are in the system are all orbiting their center of mass. And that means that the star itself is wobbling a little bit as it orbits that center of mass which is within it. So you can look for motions of a star, either along your radial line of sight, in which case you look for Doppler shifting of the light that happens when something is moving toward you or away from you as it emits light. Or if if it has a component of wobble in the plane of the sky, you can look at that motion. That's a little more difficult right now, but that's astrometric wobbling. Or if the object is orbiting along your line of sight, it will transit or eclipse a little part of the star every time it goes through an orbit cycle and you can find that slight dimming of the star every orbit. I'll show you what that looks like. Or of course what we really want to do is take a picture of the exoplanet but that's difficult as I mentioned before. I'll show you a little bit more detail of those techniques uh, soon. Radial velocity studies of star wobble have mostly been done from ground-based telescopes. Here are two of the most famous exoplanet detectors uh, th- um, that-, that have done many of these things, Jeff Marcy um, and Paul Butler and they've used ground-based telescopes. I think they are responsible for hundreds of these exoplanet detections using this technique. You can tell something, you can estimate the mass of the planet based on the wobble of the star, although there's some uncertainty because you don't know the exact inclination of the orbit. Uh, Here's a little pictorial uh, primer on how this works. Here you have your scientist looking at the happy star, it has to be a happy star, okay. And then, as you watch it, uh, it, you will see light uh, shift a little bit to the blue as the star wobbles forward and then a little bit to the red as it goes backward. And if you're looking at particular spectral lines from the star, usually hydrogen lines, you can watch them shift uh, very precisely in their frequency and that tells you about the motion of the star. So you have an unseen planet, but what you're looking at is the motion of the star. All right. You could also use other stars in the sky to create a kind of background grid against which you measure the wobbling of the star. And that tells you also that there's something tugging on the star. And there's a future observatory called the Space Interferometry Mission that's been proposed that would do just that, measuring the wobble of a star in the sky according to a path similar to this. And you could from that uh, learn what kind of planet or planets were tugging on that star. All right. Most of the planets that we've detected are much much bigger than Earth because they have a much bigger effect on their parent star. If our goal, however, is to find planets like Earth and even more planets perhaps with evidence of life, the ones we've discovered so far are really not very good candidates, all right? So these are, you know, supposed to evoke thoughts of life here. Well, why is that? Well, if you kind of think of our own solar system in this particular way, um, we have a distance from the sun down here, or the radius of the orbit. This is not to scale, obviously, but if you think of this as Earth, there's a whole zone that we refer to as the habitable zone, which is roughly the distance from the parent star that's not too close to be too hot so that all the water evaporates and it's not too far away so that all the water would freeze. It's just the right zone and it's different around different kinds of stars because if you have a small star, that habitable zone is gonna be closer in. If you have a large star, then that habitable zone is gonna be farther out. So we're really interested in detecting Earth-sized planets in the, whatever the habitable zone is from their parent star. And again, this is a very difficult goal. Right now the planets uh, that we're finding many of them are just too hot or too cold to support life or they have odd orbits that take them way out away from their star part of the time and way too close part of the time. And the problem again is that Earth-like planets are small and that planets are relatively close in to bright stars. So, you know, how in the world do we do we find them? We're finding these big gas giant planets similar to Jupiter, and that's interesting, but we're hoping to find things as small as Earth. That's difficult. All right? Just so you get the picture here, stars are a billion times brighter than the planets we're looking for, so it's kind of like looking around a lighthouse for a firefly. All right? (laughs) So, you know, you could try... Imagine you know, you cut out a nice little piece of cardboard in a nice circle and you try to hold it up you know, and, and try to block out that light. But you can already see just by looking for this that there's going to be some, some glow around the thing, some light was going to bend around whatever you try to shade the starlight with. It's going to be nearly impossible to pull out the planet from the glare. Yeah, there's our firefly. Um, it's hard. But we have people in my laboratory at NASA Goddard who are working very hard at techniques of what we call coronography, which are designed to do just this, to block out the starlight so we can actually image the planet. And then of course, what we are ultimately interested in is finding out if there's life. One of our highest goals is to develop telescopes and technology to directly detect and characterize um, Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars, and then to look for life especially signs of primitive life. So most of the scientists with NASA are thinking about life in terms of could we find bacteria, could we find fungus, could we find simple life. But of course, you all know that there are also organizations who are starting from the other direction. They're saying, you know, what would we look for if we were trying to find intelligent civilizations? What, if they were trying to contact us, what would we look for? So the search for extraterrestrial intelligence program, for example, is already listening for signals from intelligent civilizations. Now NASA is not doing that. NASA is looking for bacteria. That's, the, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> All right, but how would we know if we find it? All right, so one, one new field is called astrobiology which was not much of a field 20 years ago, and now it's very hot within NASA. And that is to try to find out what the conditions are that that we need for life, and how would we see if there were evidences of life on other planets that that we study. Well, we look for things we call biomarkers, which are evidences of things outside the planet. For example, ozone uh, produced by plants and algae, that's a type of oxygen, and we would look for evidence of oxygen in the spectra that we take of atmospheres of these planets. We look for liquid water because, as far as we know, water is required for any kind of life that we know of on Earth. Now, of course, you could have some kind of weird life that doesn't require water, but we don't know how to identify that as life. Um, Of course we could look, we first want to see the atmosphere of the planet to see if it even has any kind of atmosphere and then we can look for signs of specific biological activity such as on our planet uh, cattle produce a lot of methane so we might find a bovine planet somewhere if we're carefully looking. Now, you have to be careful because you might find something that could be produced by life, but it might also be able to pre- be produced by non-biological activity, so you have to rule out other explanations. Recently, methane was detected on the surface of Mars, but there's a lot of study now to find out whether that's being caused by some geological process deep within the surface or whether there could be some sort of sub- subsurface uh, simple life that's, that is emitting methane. What kind of signatures, uh, what kind of of life might produce observable signatures? Well, you have different trees of life producing different kinds of signatures. The photosynthesizing organisms would produce oxygen, we have methane producing organisms, we have higher plants producing an obvious uh, uh, change in the spectrum of light that you get. So these are things that astrobiologists are trying carefully to discern. And of course, if you find a planet that has life, it might not be at the same stage of life that we are on planet Earth. So we're also studying what Earth might have looked like from afar a long time ago. Um, Methanogens and cyanobacteria have been around since the Earth was only about one billion years old. And so you have to try to figure out, you know, what would an Earth-like planet that's at a different stage of life, what might it look like and could we recognize early life on other planets? All right, and we're also using space telescopes, of course, to help us. I've already mentioned Hubble. There's some others under study. Um, Different kinds of future telescopes that will be even better than Hubble at absolutely detecting, imaging, and studying these extrasolar planets. Um, I've already mentioned this transit method of finding planets going in front of stars and then finding the total amount of light from that star appearing to drop as the planet eclipses in front of it. There's a a telescope right now in space launched last year called the Kepler Observatory and Kepler is using the transit method to study thousands of stars in a particular region of our Milky Way just staring at them to find out how many of them have these periodic dips in their light and from this it is telling us or starting to tell us statistically how many stars actually have planetary systems and what those planetary systems are like. These are the first five detections from Kepler. These are planetary transits. The the curves here show you the total light of the star and the drop every time a planet transits in front of that star. And you can tell from that the size of the transiting planet. Now right now, since it hasn't been up very long, the only thing it's detecting are planets that are very close to the parent star because they have the shortest orbital periods. So the first five planets it's detected are very big. They're much larger than Jupiter Um, in in most cases, except for this one, still much larger than Earth. And in fact, they're also very hot because they're much closer to their parent star. So these are the five planets, Kepler, these five Kepler-discovered planets, much hotter than the planets in our own solar system. But it's a start, and Kepler's going to be up there until it has statistics on other planets that are closer in size to Earth. And in fact, there are some rumors of leaking detection, uh, uh, leaks of of early detections of planets more like Earth already coming out. All right, I'm going to move on through this because I want to get through, I want to show you some of the thoughts about finding life. Um, We are in my lab at Goddard studying the whole process of how stars form, how planets form around them theoretically leading to a planetary system, and we observe it by observing the disks around stars and the planets that form inside those disks. We have, we have now found over 400 planets by these different techniques and I did want to show you that we're starting to image them. This, uh, this detection came out I think within the last year, a, a star um, covered through a sp- specific kind of cor- coronography, revealing three planets in the system. Very, very exciting. You're seeing the first images of extrasolar planets. And likewise, uh, one of our team members from Goddard was a a co-investigator on this study of a disc of dust around a star, and buried in this disc, they found a planet uh, orbiting that's partly uh, responsible for shaping the the sharp edge of this dust disc. Very, very exciting times. All right, what does it mean? All right, so I think that I have maybe five more minutes, if he's gracious to me, and then we'll have time for questions. 5 or 10. Are we as human life on Earth, I and mean, we're starting to now be able to answer this question before too long as to whether life on Earth is unusual or whether it's typical, whether conditions on Earth are usual or unusual, whether our solar system is usual or unusual. Missions like Kepler are going to start giving us statistics of this, and so now we have to ask. Oh my goodness, you know, are we going to find out that it's likely that we're the only place in the galaxy or maybe the universe that has life? Of course, you can never actually answer that question as an absolute, but uh, it does make you wonder. Are we significant? Are we special? What if life is everywhere? What if we find out that life is abundant and life is starting Seemingly autonomously everywhere, what does that mean and what does it mean to be significant? Does it affect our significance? Are we accidental? Are we unusual? Where does God fit in? All these questions come to mind. We have discovered of course since the Copernican revolution that earth is certainly not in the center positionally. And in fact, we have found out that now that uh, our solar system is not even in the center of our galaxy. The galaxy is not in the center of the universe. In fact, you can't really define a center. And now, of course, we're talking about the possibility of other universes if we're in a multiverse. So you could, in fact, interpret not being central or unique as being a loss of significance if our significance is based on position. And that's often been the case. We've been, you hear a lot about us being sort of demoted from our exalted position when we found out that we weren't in the center of our solar system. Although we have to be a little careful. Uh, Dennis Danielson uh, did some scholarship to show that back, even back in Copernican times, being elevated from the center was in fact seen as an elevation. Uh, in some cases, because it was often thought of the center was sort of like hell, it was a bad place to be. So so not being in the center in some cases could, could actually imply an elevation. We also have some thoughts I think very interesting from Blaise Pascal, a very devoutly religious man, who was contemplating in his own mind of what he felt must be an infinite expanse of space and also the infinitely minute uh, smallness that we couldn't see uh, and then, of course, microscopes and things have helped us to learn that he was exactly right. There's, there's a whole universe of the small as well as the large. And he was troubled by this. In fact, he said, what is man in nature? You know, what, what are we? We're nothing in comparison with the infinite, and we're all in comparison with nothing or the very small. We're a mean, we're just average between nothing and everything. And he started thinking about this. When I consider the short duration of my life, swallowed up in the eternity before and after, that little space which I fill, engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces of which I'm ignorant and which know me not, I'm frightened. And I'm astonished at being here rather than there, for there's no reason why here than there, and why, not, why now rather than then. Who has put me here? And by whose order and direction have this place and time been allotted to me? Do you ever wonder about that for yourself? I do. He said, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. All right. What about earths? Are we significant? Well, I've got to close here with with some thoughts on this. Um, Are we significant in terms of our lives here on earth? I would say no and yes. No in terms of our place in the universe. We don't seem to occupy a special place. Planets seem to be common uh, as we detect more and more of them. We may even find that life is common and our lifespans are insignificant in relation to the time span of the universe. However, there's a yes part of this. Our planet has evolved using heavy elements produced over billions of years of star production and our Earth is in just the right situation for life to thrive. In fact, it may turn out that advanced life may be uncommon. In fact, you know, you can never rule it out completely, but we may at least be able to say that. And, of course, we've all heard that the fundamental constants of the universe seem finely tuned to allow stable development of life, at least in this universe. That, to me, implies yes, but you can go back to no and yes again. There may be other kinds of life. There may be other universes with other fundamental constants, uh, sort of by definition, we have the ones we need to be here or we wouldn't be here. That's a, you, you've, you've all thought about the anthropic principle. So this is sometimes used to explain away any thought of significance on our part. And yet, I'd say regardless of our place in space and time, why has this universe allowed the development of inhabitants that at least in one place, this one, can study the universe and consider their own destiny." I mean, to me, that is profoundly significant. What if the universe, or even multiverse if you want to go there, seems to be infused with physical potential such that the development of life in some form, complex thinking life that can study the universe and even perceive spiritually, was bound to come forth Somewhere, sometime. Uh, we, there have been many people who've thought and written in great detail about the idea of a universe that was infused with this kind of potential. Were we meant to be? I mean, this is getting beyond science. Yeah, we can measure things, but these are, this is a question outside of science or beyond science. Why are there intelligent beings who recognize the universe and recognize pain and joy and good and evil? biblically our significance is based upon the will of god and we are told in scripture that god's it's god's choice to love us and to redeem us to be with us to converse with us that god is personal god and we are made in god's image god loves good hates sin uh, hates evil forgives sin and we are made in god's image We are told that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So God's not surprised about our physical insignificance in the universe. As for man, his days are like grass, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear or respect him. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. So the thought is, is it possible that the magnitude of time and space in this universe was God's way of developing and providing just what we need for life and eventually recognizing God? We're not the first to wonder this. You're all familiar with Psalm 8 of King David. He had a lot of time when he was a shepherd boy to look out at the stars and think about things, I presume. And he said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you've established, what are human beings that you're mindful of them and mortals that you care for them? Yet you made them, or us, a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. So that same sort of dichotomy, you know, as a part of this huge cosmos, we're nothing. And yet I'm astonished that you, O Lord, have given us tremendous significance because of your will. And then finally, we need to close with what about specifically Christian thought. You know, this is where we get into this whole question of redemption. If Jesus Christ was born as a human being on this particular planet and lived his life as a human on this planet and then died and rose again as a human and in such redeemed sinful humans on this planet... Uh, Is that going to happen on other planets? Does that preclude the idea of there being life on other planets? Or does it preclude the the idea of there being life, intelligent life that is made in God's image, bearing God's image on other planets? Or would Jesus' death and resurrection on this planet cover all the sins of other beings on other planets? Or... Has Jesus visited other civilizations in their form and redeemed them as well? My goodness, you know, I don't know the answer to these things, but it is, it is something to think about. All we know for sure is that Jesus Christ, the Word, the Logos of God, is the Redeemer of the entire creation. And in fact, we're told in 1 John that Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world, and then you have to think, you know, does that include beyond our world or not? Right? There can be many opinions on these things. It's, it's uh, not clarified in scripture. There's some good, good resources here that I just want to mention. In particular, the books edited by Dot Chappell here in our group, Not Just Science, Qu- Questions Where Christian Faith and Natural Science Intersect. And also Keith Miller here, and I've forgotten the uh, publisher of his wonderful book. I think it's Erdman's. Yeah, Perspectives on an Evolving Creation, these are both really helpful uh, collections of chapters by different experts on different fields of science, and I happen to be an author or a co-author on essays in both of them, so it's a little self-promotion here, but I think these are helpful books. And I also want to mention as I close here that next February, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, DOZER program you've heard about, is going to have a special symposium at the AAAS annual meeting here in DC on this whole idea of, we call it astronomical pioneering, but finding other planets and perhaps other life, how are different religious traditions and society going to respond to either the detection of other life or the non-detection of life? So I think exploration is a godly goal. I'm gonna close with this slide and I'm gonna give each one of you an image of some kind from the Hubble Space Telescope. I have an image of of this uh, particular star forming plume in the Eagle Nebula, and some other pictures as well that I'd like you to take with you. Sorry, I don't have any pictures of exoplanets, but I'm sorry I've gone a little bit over, but I hope you've enjoyed our talk today. And just to remember this hymn that we sang, uh, I think, yesterday, it's a famous hymn, How Great Thou Art, When I Consider an Awesome Wonder, The Worlds Thy Hands Have Made, Thy power throughout the universe displayed. And considering that that same God sent his own son to die to take away my sin, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Thank you very much. It is two thirty. So, is there time for any question, one or two? I will. I will allow. Okay, one or two questions. questions. All right. And you pick. Oh, uh, Ken, he's very eager, front row student. Yes, right. The wobbling that you're talking about.
1: Yes, right.
0: The stars also oscillate. Yes. Oh, that's a wonderful question. So, how do you separate the stellar oscillation from the stellar wobble? I think that that's done by studying the types of star by only considering the types of stars that you understand the oscillation modes best of, so you can discern them. But I'm not a heliophysicist, so I can't. I I know that that's a concern, and there are people addressing it, but I don't know particularly how they differentiate it. I do know there are particular kinds of stars that they just try to stay away from because they can't differentiate between them. So, oh, this is so hard. how about somebody on... All right, right there. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what your personal response to uh, Fermi's paradox. Remind me what Fermi's question is. is Fermi's uh, question? Where he says, uh, if extraterrestrials are out there, where are, where are, are they? Yeah, right. the, the conclusion to lead to the fact that we see overwhelming evidence. Okay, so this gets into the whole idea of the Drake equation and all of that of 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 how... You, you know, trying to estimate how many civilizations there are, how many habitable star systems there might be. Are you all familiar with the Drake equation? I didn't have time to get into that today, but there's, there, are, there are interesting ways of estimating how many civilizations there might be, and whether their sphere of influence in time and space would have any chance of overlapping with our civilization's sphere of influence in time and space. And that whole enterprise is carrying on, in fact I'm invited to a, a, a symposium on an updated review of the Drake Equation in just a few weeks to see where we've come in the progress and what we're thinking now in terms of this. But there is some sobering, for those, for those who would really like to, uh, to believe that there are intelligent civilizations, the question is why haven't we encountered them? And You know, some people believe they have encountered them, but... (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of just an overt objective where everyone can, you know, see and confirm that we've been visited in some sense, recognizably by a technologically advanced civilization, that hasn't happened. And so that sort of leads, that's one piece of evidence that, maybe advanced civilizations as we would describe it are not out there or at least they're not out there within the sphere of influence. By that meaning that the time for travel for even an advanced civilization is huge and I refer you to a book by Jeffrey Bennett that I'm reading that's called Beyond UFOs It has a wonderful, though sobering, explanation of even if there are intelligent civilizations out there, given what we know about star systems and the likelihood of the advancement of intelligent life, it's going to be very difficult for an intelligent civilization to make the technological advances needed to then make the trip to come here, and then why would they in the first place kind of thing. And then also just um, um, transmissions and things like that, we don't even know what to look for. So, I personally don't have a an opinion. Um, I think the right approach is what NASA is doing is to find simple life. Can we, you know, we haven't even found simple microbial life on another planet yet in this solar system. So, I'm not, um, I I think it's worth the search, uh, but we just haven't found it yet. So, if you know, I think the first step is to understand what makes life exist on this planet, in what conditions does it thrive? Life thrives in the weirdest conditions on Earth, right? The places it shouldn't thrive, it does. The bottom of ocean vents, uh, buried in ice for thousands of years, all kinds of things, we find life. So if life can exist in odd conditions here, who's to say that God hasn't enabled weird places, other places, to, uh, to support and sustain life, but it might be simple life. So we start there, and uh, we'll go from there, and if we're visited by aliens, I'll be very excited, just like we all be. All right?